Okay, again, welcome to the Equality Arizona podcast. Um, this is a special edition on voter fraud and voter suppression. As you know, voter fraud is, of course, a political invention. And we will speak uh, during this podcast to uh, the ample empirical evidence uh, of the absence, actually, of systematic voter fraud. However, voter suppression in the United States is very real. And it is a historical phenomenon, and it has been happening for a very long time. Many would argue that it has happened uh, essentially at the very beginning of the process where non-traditional voter or non-citizen subject or who those people who were perceived as non-citizen subject, namely uh, with the 15th Amendment that extend the right to vote to uh, African-Americans uh, in the 19th century in the aftermath of the Civil War. That's when voter suppression became systemic uh, and, uh, and, and widespread. And so uh, we hope that uh, in this conversation, we will explore uh, these concepts because we are living in the midst of um, an epistemic crisis or the crisis of knowing. And part of this uh, podcast, as intended, is really to help our listener navigate through this sea of misinformation because like voter fraud, it is, it is consequential and it harms people particularly in relation to the health of our democracy. As we speak, as we speak, the impeachment trial is going on in the Senate um, for um, the January 6th um, fell siege, um, which uh, the former president uh, has been essentially accused of instigating an insurrection uh, of sort. So it's, it's very consequential. And we hope that in this conversation, we can explore uh, the many ways in which uh, voter fraud is not real, while voter suppression is real. And we will also turn specifically to Arizona so that our listener can, can uh, have a sense of what's going on on the ground and how to, how to deal with this situation. So let me begin by asking both Tanner and Michael to talk a little bit about um, voter fraud. Like, how do you... How, how, how do you encounter this concept and what does it really mean for you and for, for our listeners? That's such an important question, Dr. Kwan. Um, I mean, voter fraud is um, something that is nearly non-existent, right? We know that voter fraud does not happen in any election in any wide scale format um, here in this country, right? We have really strict, um, our, the states govern uh, how elections work in each state. Um, states have strict laws and procedures and um, have um, bipartisan and nonpartisan commissions and poll workers and processes set up so that um, the people who are safeguarding the elections, county recorders, secretaries of state, right, they're doing it from a nonpartisan position where they're working very hard to maintain election integrity. And so, I think that's what stood out to me this year um, in 2020 was how one long before the election even happened, how the Republican Party and the former president planted this idea that there was going to be widespread voter fraud um, when there's literally no precedent for that in the country. <laughs> right. Um, and when states have worked extremely hard to create, um, especially because of the Voting Rights Act, right, when especially when that was really strictly enforced um, to create um accessible systems. Um, many states have worked to since then, right, and have since the Voting Rights Act have worked in different ways and before um, to suppress voters that they don't want voting, but that's a different thing, right? So there are, um, um, so I was, I mean, this election, this idea that American elections or elections in the United States um, are subject to widespread fraud was one um, not in line with my experience. I've worked in this field for over 20 years, right? And so totally, um, totally an outlier, just that idea even, and doesn't, um, 
has, is not proven by history <laughs> or by my personal experience working in this field. Um, but then watching them continue that narrative, right, of voter fraud with no evidence um, with states like Arizona, where we've had mail-in voting through the permanent early voter list for over 30 years, right? Um, we know how to do mail-in voting. We have amazing Secretary of State right now, and we always have very dedicated Secretaries of State um, who are really focused on election integrity and making sure that Arizonans have access to um, voting um, and to, you know, to polling locations, to mail-in voting. All of that was conducted with, you know, the, the most transparency, the, you know, the sort of the highest degree of transparency and nonpartisanship. Um, and in fact, when they did both the, the manual, the hand recount and the machine recount here, they didn't find even one example um, of voter fraud, right? And there was this long process of verifying the ballots, like not even one. And so for me, that's what really stood out about this election is that um, somehow the Republican Party and the former president have convinced a significant amount of the American electorate that the these really detailed and very... Um, very transparent processes that you can understand and be a part of if you would like to, you know, you can sign up to be a poll worker, you can participate in this process. Um, everyone can. Um, they've convinced a significant part of the American public that these processes are not, do not have integrity, right. And are not working as they should. Um, when the real problem is when a state um, or a government uh, entity of any kind tries to make voting harder for American citizens. That's actually the problem, not making voting more accessible <laughs> to American voters. Okay. So, so Michael, you're describing this pro the voting process and uh, ensuring that, that there is integrity to this voting process. But there's widespread uh, misapprehension, misunderstanding that, for instance, that somehow the 2020 election was fraudulent. And I want actually want Tanner to explain to us, like, what specifically what we mean by voter fraud. Um, because we know that respectable, as you suggest, respectable, reliable research outfits, including major universities, have shown that voter fraud isn't a, really a thing. And this includes the respected Brennan uh, the Center for Brennan, uh, Brennan for Justice at NYU, and of course, closer to home, Arizona State. So, what if it is if if it isn't really a thing? What is it? And, and what when we say voter fraud, or when uh, say President former President Trump uh, and many of his followers accuse the process of being fraudulent, what do they mean? Um, I, I hear people say uh, dead people voting, that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about that, Tanner? Well, my feeling is is that um, this really relates to the crisis of knowing that we're talking about and that that crisis of knowing is actually manufactured. So when I think of voter fraud, I think of a manufactured piece of misinformation that leads people to believe that things like dead people voting or people voting twice or trucks uh, carrying ballots that have been filled out for a Democratic candidate, that these are like manufactured pieces of misinformation which are being used to create a crisis of knowing in our country so that people feel confused about whether or not that they should vote. And I believe that this... Uh, this is a tactic that, you know, people in American politics have used for a long time. And they've used it, for instance, just by, um, you know, when African-Americans were first allowed to vote, there were restrictions on who could vote based on whether or not they understood the law. You know, and and a question that could be asked, for instance, is how many bubbles are on a bar of soap? So it's a it's a way of sort of like gaslighting the system and gaslighting citizens of the United States into believing that they are not allowed to vote, that there's no access for them to vote. And I think that um, if we look at the way the Republican Party and the Trump administration in particular uh, focused on the on the disallowing the census to take place 
we see why there's so much fear about this and why they would need to cover up um, their own tactics to suppress people from voting is because the demographics of the United States are changing. They don't want that to be recognized and they don't want it to be public knowledge that their white majority who votes for their party is in significant decline and will be losing power very shortly, as we see all over the United States. So I think one of the misconceptions is, and, and, and there seems to be a pattern of significant investment on the part of the Republican Party to suppress the vote, right? Because there's this idea that if more people come out of, to vote because of this demographic shift, that somehow they'll vote Democratic. The elections, uh, the 2020 general election results are actually mixed, right? It's true that there have been an unprecedented number of people voted, I mean, for uh, over 100 years, 120 years, I think. Um, some to- 107 million people voted early either in person or by mail. And there were a lot of uh, politics, a lot of heated discussions, a lot of lawsuits around the, the, the early votes and the accessibility to the ballot. And I want to unpack that a little bit, Michael, especially when you were talking about voting suppressions. Uh, what exactly is that involved? Is it purging of voter rolls? Is it denying access to the ballot? Because you talked about accessibility to the ballot. And there seems to be a a systematic investment in suppressing that vote. So while voter fraud might be minuscule and small because all of the agency came out, including Homeland Security, came out and essentially said um, that the 2020 election, there's no widespread, there's no evidence of widespread fraud. And I think Tanner is right that there's specific reasons for why this was part of the larger public consciousness. Is that part of the suppressing the vote too, that voter fraud itself is part of the tactic? Can you talk a little bit about voting suppression, this different tactic, and how voter fraud itself is it's an attempt to depress the vote? Absolutely. So we, have, we do have um, plenty of evidence um, that shows that um, Creating mistrust in our electoral system is a tactic um, of the extreme right, right, of the far right, um, to to suppress the vote. And so we also have a lot of evidence showing that, you know, people, thought leaders um, and think tanks like ALEC, right, and legislative incubators like ALEC, um, they understand um, that the fewer people that vote, the more likely um, conservative, extreme conservatives are to be elected, right? And so Tea Party members, right, when the Tea Party movement was happening, right now, the QAnon kind of folks, right? So these um, extreme right-wing sort of movements, which are um, really sort of neo-fascist movements, right? (laughs) Um, these, um, These folks, and who represent those movements are much more likely um, and and authoritarian movements, right, within and trends within the conservative um, wing of uh, political thought in uh, in this country are much more likely to be elected if fewer people vote. And that is actually an articulated strategy um, of the Republican Party, as well as these much more um, extreme uh, subgroups, right, that fit into um, the Republican Party and the conservative agenda. And so um, so that is very well documented. It's articulated. We have lots of uh, folks, you know, from the former chairman of ALEC, right, on video saying, we win when fewer people vote, right? And so, so we know that voter suppression is something that they are invested in as, um, a, as a political movement. And so this is done in lots of ways, right? We've seen this um, done by um in say like in Georgia right or even in Arizona in the in I think it was two presidential primaries ago um not this last primary but the presidential preference election before that um 
a, a slimming down of um, when Michelle Reagan was Secretary of State, right? A slimming down of, um, and I think Helen Purcell was the county recorder here in Maricopa, um, of polling locations, right? Of cutting polling locations, of making the vote less accessible so that people had to stand in line for hours to vote, right? Um, I think we saw, we've seen we always see that um, happening typically in districts that are um, primarily black voters, primarily Latino voters, right? Primarily um, voters from disenfranchised and marginalized communities um, and poor uh, communities, right? We see fewer ballot locations, fewer polling locations um, and fewer options as far as voting go. We also see things like purging of the voter rolls, right? And so this is a common tactic where um, there the uh, the voter rolls will be purged, um, supposedly, uh, to, for election, to protect the election, right? And to combat voter fraud. Um, but what ends up happening most of the time is it's not just folks who have passed away or, um, people who have registered who no longer have voting rights. Um, but there's just a purging of typically marginalized voters, right? And so that's poor people, black folks, um, Latinx folks, right? Um, people of color. Um, so we see these tactics happening constantly. We also see an increase in um, uh, sort of a new version um, of um, poll tax, right? And a new version um, of these laws that deeply restrict who can vote through voter ID laws, right? So um, we're, we see um, a strict uh, strictening, I don't know if that's the correct word, or a more strict process um, happening in or a movement for that in different places where one, you have to be able to afford um, a specific kind of ID from your state, right? Because a state identification is not free. Unfortunately, you do have to pay for an ID card or a driver's license. And in places like Arizona, that's getting more expensive now that we have to comply with real ID, right? And so these are not $2, $5 ID cards. They're expensive and not everybody has the um, the access to that, right? Depending on their socioeconomic class. Um, we see um, oftentimes you have to bring um, not just a one form of ID, but have to bring several forms of ID, prove where you live. So that restricts um, if you're voting, your right to vote and your access to vote if you are homeless, right? Or if you are experiencing any type of, type of housing insecurity um, and perhaps you're um, couch surfing or you don't have utilities, you know, at the place where you live, right? There's, there's a lot that goes into um, sort of creating these stricter identity laws where it makes it harder and harder to prove your identity. And then for folks like trans folks like me, um, that becomes even harder if your gender identity doesn't match with your legal documentation. You know, like early on in my transition, I was actually turned away um, from a polling location because I hadn't been able to afford to change my legal name yet, um, yet had been on hormones and they would not let me vote. Luckily, it was only in a, it was a small election um, but I still wanted to vote and had that right to vote, but was turned away because they didn't believe I was who I who I am, right? And would not accept my identification. Um, all of those, you know, these are, there are many, many voter suppression um, tactics. But to your point, even creating the idea, planting that seed that voter fraud is a widespread problem is a part of that tactic, right? That allows these folks to pass legislation that creates stricter ID laws, right? Create stricter processes that actually limit people's access to the vote. Um, even that now after the 2020 election, there's discussion throughout the country of ending vote by mail, right? Where that's been a critical way to make the vote accessible to the elderly, to the disabled, right? To rural voters, to lots of different voters. Um, and so that is, it's an articulated and clear strategy. Um, creating this mistrust in the system is a part of how this extreme extremist group of people is trying to suppress um, the majority of American voters. Thank you, Michael, for, um, for sharing all that information with us. And um, I, what I would add to this is, is, uh, is to kind of center back to our crisis of knowing and explain from my point of view, how that manufactured crisis of knowing 
is working in tandem with the tangible things that happened on the ground that you mentioned. And I think that one of the, I think that basically if you look at the, the tactic of the Trump administration, their tactic was to outsmart the algorithm, basically to outthink the algorithm and to manipulate how algorithms work so that more people would be exposed to misinformation about elections throughout the campaign. And, you know, I read the, I was just reading about, um, you know, some recommendations by the newamerica.org think tank that, um, that, that talk about how the internet can regulate information about voting so that the public is always informed about the source of an information and so that algorithms cannot be as easily manipulated by bad actors like the Trump administration. Um, And so I think that if you just look at what happened in the 2016 election where Russia used, you know, their state-owned media apparatus to spread information from um, from different groups about the United States that may not have been true to manipulate people towards voting for Donald Trump. I believe that the Republican Party has picked up those tactics and used them to manipulate people's desire to vote. One way that they do that is by posting false information about where to vote, times to vote, and that sort of thing needs to be vetted by internet companies. And um, one suggestion that I read that I think is very interesting is um, that if a person has been exposed to misinformation online, that their internet provider should make them aware that they've been exposed to false information and then target them for correct information about voting locations and um information about voting. And I think that part of the reason that this is happening is, is that in the past, you know, like when, when the, the formation of the United States, only 6% of the population could vote, that legally could vote. And so there was sort of brute force used to make sure that only landowners, only people with wealth could contribute to the political ideologies and foundations of the countries. And as that's grown, um the tactics went from the thing that i mentioned earlier where people were uh disallowed to vote by ridiculous tests that we are not able to use such brute tactics anymore so they've they're using algorithms as a battlefield with inside of our minds basically i mean i i wanted i want to tell our listener that we will um at some point, take up artificial intelligence and algorithms and have this conversation. But for now, um, I think that there, the, big data is definitely involved. Um, and, and, and I want to um, first take a moment and, and kind of like kind of go through some basic history um, for our listener. And, and, and really, I want to know what makes 2020 different because voting suppression is really part of American political landscape for a very, very long time. We have had, as, as Tanner and both, both of you um, have pointed out, we have a long history of reserving voting as a privilege. Uh, and the estimate, as Tanner pointed out, is between 7 to 15% when the Constitution was written that reserved the right to vote only to property-owning white males. It took Three amendments, the 15th, extending the right to vote uh, to African-American, then the 19th to women, and then the 26th to people uh, under 21 and and over 18, um, spanning more than 100 years before, along with Civil Voting Rights and Civil Rights Act, uh, to ensure uh, that we actually have universal franchise. But there's still various loopholes, particularly uh, regarding uh, people who have a criminal record. Um, in the aftermath of the Civil War, Black people got the right to vote with the 15th Amendment. Uh, but many states, including the North, there's this misnomer that somehow these things only happen in the South. Um, many states in the North came up with very intricate measures to suppress the, the, the Black votes. 
Uh, and so you write from polling taxes to literacy, literacy tests uh, to Klan rallies. And, and I wanted to also talk a little bit about um, voter intimidation, because that's also real, especially within the larger context of very violent uh, protests and, and, and insurrections. Uh, and, and people are talking, there are some states that are allowing now, or at least discussing the possibility of allowing drivers to, to, to face fewer consequences when they hit a crowd to protesters, nonviolent protesters. Uh, we have to keep this in mind, right? Um, there were so-called white primaries where black people were banned from voting uh, in the primary. Um, so the 15th Amendment extended the right to vote to, to African-American. The 19th of, uh, Amendment extended the right to vote to women. And this is after over a century of protest and mobilization, uh, not only by white women, but also black women and, and, and other women of color, right? And really not until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, when people of color, particularly women of color, indigenous people, Native Americans, Latinx and Asian American citizens for the first time actually able to exercise that, that right. So in recent years, we've seen waves of, of, of state. 25 out of 50 states have implemented various voting restrictions that you're talking about. And I want to get to Arizona more specifically. Uh, and these restrictions disproportionately affect Black people. It affects people of uh, color. It affects young people. So Stacey Abrams' organization uh, also focused on uh, getting young people out to vote, right? The fair fight that, that doesn't just focus on people of color or Black people, but it also focuses on the young vote, the youth vote. Um, so what makes 2020 different? And now that Trump is gone, although, yes, there is a trial that's going on to, to bar him from from running for office, well, first to convict him and then possibly to bar him from running for offices. But what makes it different? And it now that he's gone, are these are are are, are these restrictions? Uh, what are what are the Republicans doing in the aftermath of the twenty twenty election? Oh, that's a lot of questions. Um, so let's see. I mean, I think in some ways the the tactics aren't different, right? And so we're seeing, you know, the same strategies, similar tactics that we've seen um, throughout history to suppress the vote, to intimidate um, BIPOC voters, right? To intimidate people um, who who sort of, who have a vested interest in um, either keeping the political status quo or making it um, more leaning more towards this authoritarian right-wing um, status quo. Um, we, we are seeing similar tactics, right? We saw the Proud Boys this time, right, at the insurrection and other groups like that. They're a domestic white supremacist terrorist group. We saw that with the Klan, right, for decades and decades, right? Like, these, this isn't new. It's just new forms of it, right? So different people, perhaps, maybe in different places, um, but we've seen... Um, it's just a, the current iteration of many of the same tactics. I do think something that is, is different today is, um, the 24 hour news cycle, right? And constant access to, um, information in a way that perhaps we didn't have, um, the same level of, constant bombardment of media, whether that's social media or um, the news media, um, the corporate news media. Um, and so I think that has shifted things, the conversation a little bit and um, allowed 2020 to, it, what it, I think what it did via social media in particular is it's allowed um, this idea that voter fraud is an actual problem that it is, is not. There is no proof that voter fraud is a widespread systemic problem in the United States. Um, it allowed that idea to live and to gain strength, not based on evidence, but based on just um, my friend said, basically, right? <laughs> or someone posted, or this idea is out there, um, though it has no credibility, right? There's no facts surrounding it. There's no one credible spreading these ideas, um, but they're still spreading, right? Because you, in this age of social media, you don't have to be credible, right? To have, um, to put that information out there. And so, um, so I think there's, 
there's part of that's part of the difference um, in creating this narrative of voter fraud that is lending to um, and has become a strategic effort to suppress the vote. Does it matter that that the architect of some of these fraudulent uh, messaging around voting come out of the White House? Does it make a difference? Uh, yeah. It does. Absolutely. It comes out of the White House. And I, I also want to be clear, it comes out of the national and the state Republican parties, right? Like we have to hold parties accountable. Um, parties are private entities. They're not they're not government entities, right? And they, the Republican Party right now has a group of people um, and has always, we've, you know, we've talked about this, had a vested interest in suppressing the vote because they know that um, they win, right? More frequently when, um, at least in modern times, they win uh, more frequently when less voters vote. But having that legitimized, right, in a way that is so clear by having the the actual presidential administration saying that there's going to be widespread voter fraud months before the election actually takes place, then having state party chairs like um, Dr. Kelly Ward here, right, reiterating that over and over again, having all of these different um, official official people, right, people who are holding positions of power either in the Republican Party or in the White House and in the, the former administration, um, or even members of Congress like Josh Hawley, right, or Ted Cruz saying that, um, that lends a whole different level, I think, of power, and it legitimates, um, unfortunately, these claims made without any evidence, um, without any support, right? And so they're just... It's sort of a, it, I, what I've seen is, I guess, an echo chamber, right, of people just saying the thing over and over and over and then citing one another as proof that it's true. Yeah, it seems to me that there is a crisis of legitimacy and there's two very different crises that are going on. Uh, so it's not just the crisis of knowing, but the crisis of knowing is is very instrumental uh, and linked up to one of the crises of legitimacy, which is the reality is that the Republican Party has been running on a set of policies that are dangerously unpopular, right? Uh, what's interesting is they're pulling a number of policy and however you feel about Biden, these policies are extraordinarily popular, even, and it's a clear majority, uh, even among Republican voters. It's, it's really remarkable. Right. So you have elections that are so close. We're talking about some elections are decided by several thousand or tens of thousand votes, not million. And when you have a poll that show, you know, 56 percent, so a clear majority, that's not that's not uh, that's not polarization. That's very indicative of how popular some of these policies are. So there's a there's a crisis of legitimacy on the part of the Republican Party, where they, they essentially, their policies have no legitimacy because they cater to a small percentage of the population. Yes, exactly. And if you look at, I mean, to drive that point home even further, you can look at a wide range of issues from like wealth reform and taxes um, to abortion, to LGBTQ rights, to vote, to the ability to vote. And you, you see across the board, polling Republican independents and Democratic voters that it's actually it is not the Republican Party's position on these issues that is what the majority of Americans agree with. And if you you can just you ask the question, even when you ask the question, um, I you know was part of a briefing about um, reproductive rights and reproductive freedom and policy around that. Even when you use the inflammatory language around that, you still get a majority of Republican, Democrat, and independent voters saying that they believe in an individual's right to make choices about their own life and that the Republican Party's position on reproductive rights and abortion is not the one that they support. And so, you know, there's, I think because of that, because the Republican Party um, and the conservative movement in this country represents such a small elite group of people and their interests, um, you know, that that they have to create these false narratives, right? They have to create this crisis of, of knowing, this crisis of legitimacy, and they have to overtly work to suppress the majority of voters because they know that the majority of Americans actually disagree with their policy positions and how they think this country should only work for a very small elite group 
of conservative people. Because <laughs> there's there are two pieces to the crisis of legitimacy. And and the second piece is linked up to Tanner, and I want, actually want Tanner to, to speak to it, is, is, is the crisis of legitimacy that is manufactured, right? So, so we have data that evidence that shows very little voter voter fraud. We have the process that is getting better. It has problem, but it is getting better, particularly through automatic absentee um, uh, absentee voting and and mail balloting. Um, so, so it seems to me that that this crisis is 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 in manufacture about voting itself. That so uh, so again, even after the inauguration took place nearly more than two thirds of the Republican of Trump voter, I should say, not Republican voter, but Trump voters continue to believe that the election is fraudulent. That is a problem. And so earlier I asked about how does it work and does it matter if it's coming from the White House that 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 you have part of the government, an executive branch of a government actually manufacture a legitimacy crisis of authority. And this authority is a democratic authority, right? And so, Tanner, if I start saying something silly, how does the algorithm work? If I start saying something silly as opposed to President, former President Trump saying something silly, how does it go viral? And if, if you have a crisis of, of legitimacy that is instigated on the part of those powerful they corporations or the White House, um, what do we do as just everyday voter? I mean, can I just start make up something and, and will it go viral or do I have to be attached to something that make it go viral? Well, I think that the answer to that question is, is that um, we're living in unprecedented times because we're interacting with an intelligence that does not function like our own. For instance, it has databases that it can access basically like, I mean, I, and I'm just, I'm just a normal person trying to understand it myself, but we're interacting with something that has access to databases that's collecting information about people all the time to where these artificial intelligences, you know, like people will say, oh, I said something around my phone and I think it heard me. Well, maybe it didn't, but it's looking at what you like, what you look at, what you, and it's basically constructing a psychological profile about you. And so people who understand how those algorithms work are able to target messages and in fact, pay to target messages at people who are susceptible to certain types of thoughts and dispositions. And so I think that as, you know, and this is my reason for wanting to create this podcast or on this format is I think that we need to rapidly be informing people about how to interact with the AI that they carry around in their pocket all day long and how to become educated about how algorithms work so that we can demand that our legislators pass laws that protect our privacy, our data, and the way that we intercept information so that we have more control and agency over the type of information that we that we digest so that politicians and other bad actors, for instance, you know, foreign, foreign, foreign countries um, cannot manipulate public opinion towards misinformation campaigns. And I think that part of what's happening is, is that we've had a secure election system, but it's now interacting with a form of technology that, that, you know, foreign actors can, can uh, intervene in that basically any any bad actor can intervene in and when we were just reading newspapers and watching tv for information it was a lot less easy for people to infiltrate the means through which information is passed to the electorate okay so so i want to make sure two things one is we are going to have a, a conversation on ai so i don't want this conversation to be about ai but i also i want to caution us because I'm listening to you, Tanner, and quite frankly, that is that is a, a fine line between this it thing, this this thing that's sitting in our pocket, 
collecting information and the accusation that voting machines, in fact, can be manipulated. Now, it's true that there's no evidence to suggest that the voting uh, machines were manipulated in the last election, in the 2020 election. But still, um, this somehow it's 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 believable. Uh, it sounds reasonable. And what I'm suggesting is that well, foreign intervention in elections is not new. It isn't the 21st century phenomenon. The United States have meddled in elections all over the world. Okay, so so foreign uh, interest in uh, possibly determining the outcome uh, is it's always there. Um, but what I want to get to is. What makes this crisis of legitimacy different insofar as all else being equal, that there's always foreign interest, that there are voting machines that we use, but there's also uh, mechanisms that we deal with that. There are hard ballots that can be checked against electronic ballots. Where What I'm talking about is the manufacturing of misinformation of, on voting itself. Uh, and 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 the election outcome, Michael. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening in Arizona, especially since the election, and how that may help us unpack this conundrum or this confusion that I'm in? Absolutely. So in Arizona, like uh, every or many uh, states, and especially battleground states, right, and swing states, we saw after the election. Um, sort of unprecedented challenges uh, to the to the vote. Um, and so it is absolutely a part of our electoral process and within the rights of any candidate to request, um, according to uh, whatever the statutes are in the state, right, to um, request recounts if uh, it falls, basically, if the count falls within a specific margin of error, right? And so um, contesting an election once is not an abnormal thing. Right. And that's something that is a part of the election process and a, pair, a part of conducting a fair election. Um, what was abnormal this time was that once, twice, three times wasn't enough. Right. We saw that it didn't matter how many times the vote in Arizona, in other places, was recounted and verified and certified. Um, the the GOP and, and the former president were still questioning the vote and still calling it fraudulent, right? And so uh, we saw this in the most extreme case in the call with Georgia, um, where literally former President Trump says to the Georgia Secretary of State, all I need are 11,000 and whatever votes, right? I just need you to find those. Um, and so he's literally instructing a Secretary of State to either dismiss that number of votes for Joe Biden or to manufacture uh, votes for himself, right? Um, and so in Arizona, we saw, um, we have seen um, the the Republican Party here continue um, to question the validity of the the vote. Um, we have seen that in um, many forms, uh, culminating sort of yesterday in perhaps one of the more dramatic and extreme uh, moments where the the legislature here um, and the um, Republican caucus in the legislature uh, attempted to to actually essentially arrest um, to to censure and arrest the um, the county officials in Maricopa County and so um, the the commissioners and so they wanted to uh, basically the Republican Party had. Um, demanded that the county turn over um, the the votes, the actual votes, turn over the voting machines and turn over the votes, um, not so that an independent group or a bipartisan group or a group with any uh, real oversight um, and transparency could verify and look at the ballots, but so the the GOP here in Arizona on its own behind closed doors could do that. Um, and so that's not how elections work, right? We don't, there is no group, no political party that is given the votes and then allowed to close their doors and privately verify because we know that that's not how you conduct a fair election. Um, luckily that vote failed and the commissioners uh, were not arrested, which would have been um, unprecedented because those, uh, the, the county commissioners refused to, um, 
to comply with the Republican Party, um, as they should have to protect the integrity of our election. <laughs> um, but we, so we've seen that. We saw that yesterday. Um, that was an extreme moment. We were on national news all over, um, and in likely international news, I'm sure as well, uh, showing, uh, what our Republican Party was trying to do to, one, create doubt in the election and to potentially um, cheat, right, uh, after the fact, um, which it, the election has been certified, the new president, um, as well as themselves, right, they have been installed into office. And that's a part of something that's also fascinating is that while they are continuing to contest um the presidential election, they're not questioning that they got elected. <laughs> they're not questioning the down, down ballot races that were decided by a few hundred or a few dozen votes um, that, that, you know, allow them to sit in elected office now, um, which is also a fascinating thing. Um, but we're also seeing this session, so that we're in the legislative session uh, in Arizona. It starts in January. Um, we always hope that it ends sooner than later here in Arizona, um, because the, the less time that the legislature is in session, the less harm that they can do to the Arizona, uh, to Arizonans. Um, right. We've seen a number of bills introduced um, to limit uh, access to voting. Some of the most egregious um, are actually attacking our permanent early voter list. Um, like I said before, Arizona has had this permanent early voter list, which is our vote by mail list for more than 30 years we know how to do it, right? Like you can go and watch interviews of Secretary of State Katie Hobbs um, or probably any <laughs> former Secretary of State in the last 30 years speaking confidently about this system because we've worked really hard to create a very good mail, vote by mail system here. Um, and there are a number of bills um, that are, one is seeking to um, purge different kinds of folks from the permanent early voter list. Um, that's SB 1069, HB 2632. This one would require that permanent early list voters um, don't just you know, vote and then sign the ballot. You have to sign the ballot. Your signature is then verified through a very rigorous process, right? You, there's all sorts of things that happen to make sure that it is you who has cast that ballot. Um, but this would add another layer. This bill would add another layer that you would not only have to sign your ballot, you would have to get it notarized, um, which many of us know is a, is not a free process, right? Very, very few people have access to free notary. Um, in fact, we saw this um, in in Oklahoma this year in the 2020 election to do the mail-in voting, um, they had to, you had to have your, your ballot notarized, which just adds an extra step. And during a pandemic, right, or during any crisis, that means that you're even less likely or less able to vote um, if you had to add extra steps to that process. Um, and then HB 20, 2370, this would just eliminate the permanent early voter list entirely. And so um, so we've got a number of attacks specifically on the mail-in voting system um, in order to, um, to make the vote less accessible to people um, and to, I think, also create um, doubt in this well-established system here in Arizona um, that has increased access to the vote to so many voters for so many decades, right? And so... We just, you know, we're seeing um, just this this widespread attack, and this is happening everywhere, right? This is not uh, just happening in Arizona, um, although, you know, we we are typically one of the first to deal with most the most extreme things, and so, um, you know, we're seeing that that hasn't let up at all, um, that hasn't stopped. There are so many groups, um, so many bipartisan groups working against these bills because. Um, you know, these are very clear and very extreme attacks on an established voting system. Um, so our, we're, we're hopeful that we'll be able to beat these bills, um, but we are seeing them nonetheless. Well, I, Michael, I think that, that the, the way that you led us there leads us into an interesting point that I think that our listenership, um, you know, it, is affected by, which is that Voter suppression in the United States has always been linked to racial equity and to equity between um, <clears throat> genders as they were understood in that time period. You know, women were not allowed to vote. Um, and I feel like 
um, those things have always been linked and that the level of intimidation has only really changed shape. But that in the past, you know, people in southern states could lynch someone in their neighborhood, for instance, and use very direct violence to scare people away from voting. And now um, in a state like Arizona, where the demographics are changing drastically and where populations are more likely to vote for Democrats because they support their rights, you know, as LGBTQ people, as black people, as Latinx people, as indigenous people, that the, you know, the democratic party has a better uh, reputation and, and, you know, passes the laws that help our communities. Um, So they're having to, they're having to revert to bullying tactics, like trying to overturn an election, but that it's really, it's, it's really the same level of violence and bullying. It's an established tactic, but what's different in my opinion is, is that um, it's really undermining the fabric of democracy itself. Whereas democracy at, at one time was limited to a very small group of people, but now that it's been extended to the majority of Americans, um, the fabric of democracy itself is being destabilized by these tactics. And we, you know, we need to vigorously combat this if we want to maintain our democracy. And, and, and in my opinion, that has a lot to do with LGBTQ people, people of color, indigenous people making their way into the fabric of power financially and politically in the United States, and that terrifies people who are uh, white supremacist, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's that's right. I mean, I think part of this is really about the the, the threat to the existing power arrangement. Um, Carol Anderson, who is an amazing historian, uh, wrote this incredible uh, book about um, white rage. Um, the violence, um, racial violence in this country. Also, her most recent book, of course, is One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. And she, con- she one of the most important observations in that book that she makes is that, as, as Tanner suggests, voting is no longer perceived as a right, but a privilege that need to be preserved for a few And we mentioned it took the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to essentially make operationalize this universal franchise to um, women of color, LGBTQ people, indigenous people, Asian American, Latinx, and and others who have been historically, you know, uh, whose votes have been suppressed. She ends the book in the most remarkable way, and I, I want to, because she, of course, is calling for a new Voting Rights Act, because one of the things that we haven't really spent a lot of time on is also to point out how the Supreme Court itself has not, has abdicated its responsibility to uphold the right, the universal franchise for every group. So she said, without the protection of the Voting Rights Act, American democracy remain in peril. It is clear that far too many policymakers believe that the right to vote is something to be earned after perhaps paying a modern day poll tax or walking miles to the nearest polling station or standing in line for hours to cast a ballot. It is also clear with the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, a major legal and political paradigm shift has taken place. The responsibility for upholding the right to vote has moved off the broad shoulders of the state and being placed squarely on the backs of the individual citizens. State apparently don't have the time to find accessible polling site, yet Native Americans were given just a few weeks to establish a physical street address if they wanted to vote. Georgia can use a racially discriminatory res- registration system to put citizens in electoral limbo, but it's the Americans who must drag a treasure trove of documents to the polling station hoping one will prove their right to cast a ballot. Again, that's from uh, Carol Anderson, one person, no vote, how voter suppression is destroying our democracy. And in many ways, um, 
as you said, Michael, Arizona knows what it has demonstrated how how to work with absentee ballot, with mail-in ballot. Colorado observers and political scientists have pointed out that Colorado, where all registered voters receive ballots since 2013, Colorado shows that vote by mail works. So the, the conclusion that we'll leave with is why aren't the rest of the country emulating the things that are working, be it in Washington or Colorado or Arizona, but instead in the aftermath of the 2020 election, and it did this, you know, we have a concerted effort, sounds like you are characterizing, that is actually legitimizing what is a fraudulent statement to begin with, weaponizing fraud as a way to suppress the vote even further. Now, Michael, do you have a sense that this is unique to Arizona or is this a broad nationwide attempt? I think it's a broad attempt um, and it's a broad attempt. Um, we're seeing, you know, this, these kinds of bills are seeing um, this concerted effort to discredit uh, mail-in voting and voting in general because in a representative democracy voting is power. Right. And unfortunately, um, you know, if we, if, if both parties, if every elected official, if everyone from any political ideology, whatever that is on the spectrum of political ideology, was truly invested in the idea of representative democracy, we would want universal enfranchisement and we would want to make that as easy and accessible as possible for the American people, right? So instead of having to opt into voting, you would have to opt out of voting, right? <laughs> you would get your mail, you would get a, everyone would get a mail-in ballot, everyone would get, right? Everyone would have lots of options for being able to successfully and rightfully vote um, as a part of our rights um, as members of you know this country as citizens of this country and so um but what we see and what we know is that you know the there are different political wings and political thought and political parties that believe in representative democracy to different degrees because it either serves or does not serve their own political interests of the group of people that they are trying to represent. Um, today, that's we've talked over and over how the Republican Party is truly only representative of a very small minority of elite people. Um, and universal enfranchisement and having widespread voting power does not serve their interest. At other times, that's been different parties, right, in the past because political parties uh, change and move, but that's the reality today. And so um, we are seeing that continue, that um, the today the, the current Republican Party is not interested in universal um, enfranchisement is not interested in truly protecting and preserving representative democracy, um, which is a deeply scary thing, right? <laughs> that yeah. is, yes, that is. is yeah, how we is. work in this country. And that is how we are supposed to exercise power in this country um, and make political choices together, right? That's how the union works is right. through the electoral process. And so it's, it's a true threat. Um, it's a true threat to our, to our, our representative democracy um, and to the future of our country. Tanner, do you have a closing comment on that note? I do. Michael, um, I really appreciate your vision for Equality Arizona. Um, and, and what, what it leads me to say is, is that what we're doing here is political education for our community. And as the Republican Party has become the party of misinformation, um, as an organization, as a community, we need to become people of information, people of education, um, we want people to become educated about all these topics, to learn as much as you possibly can, to, to learn about how to interact with the world around you so that you make informed decisions that have agency and that benefit your community and benefit the communities that intersect with your communities. And, and you know, I appreciate your vision for creating that. Thank you, Dr. Kwan, for contributing to this. I personally am learning so much and I'm sure that all of our listeners are learning, you know, just from, you know, hearing different ideas and um, from 
from ideas that come from facts, from ideas that come from from inquiry. So I really appreciate having this opportunity to speak in this format. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I want to um, I want to thank Michael also um, for for pointing this this threat uh, out. Um, and I, I just in closing, I want to say that voting, of course, is a basic requirement of any democratic political system. And for democracy to be substantive and meaningful, all voting restriction restriction must cease. And everyone who is eligible to vote should vote. We know that elections have consequences. And despite the fact that big money underwrites election in the United States, the simple act of voting remains one of the most, not the only, but one of the most potent forms of political participation. And voting is only one among a series of very intentional acts that have to be done for democracy to be meaningful. Unpopular party, rather than restricting the right to vote, they should try to run on policies that are popular, that are re- that 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 resonate with the the public. And I know sometimes the people will get it wrong, and sometimes the machine gets it wrong. But without voting, we will have lost one of the few human element left in this body politics that's dominated by money, by corporation, by malice, and also by algorithm. So I want to make sure that we get that right. And I want to make sure that, that, that we it's never too early to register to vote. If you are eligible to vote, please, please register to vote wherever you are. Thank you, Dr. Kwan. And thank you, Tanner. You bet. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, both of you.